0: This is an Odyssey Original. This is KDX in Death. I'm Rob Archer.
1: And I'm Elsa Ramon in for Charles Feldman today. Did Hamas know secrets about Israel's military before the attack? We're going to go in-depth into whether there were intelligence failures or something else. What happens next?
0: And as the actor's strike continues, others in Hollywood getting frustrated they can't get back to work. It's collateral damage. And Rite Aid having major money problems will look into whether it's a sign of a bigger problem with the pharmacy giants.
1: But we are going to start with the Israel-Hamas war. Shay Hershkovitz is a former Israeli intelligence officer and... Current professor at Virginia Tech Center for Environmental Security. He's also the author of The Future of National Intelligence, How Emerging Technologies Reshape Intelligence Communities. Shay, thank you so much for joining us, especially during this very tough time for Israel.
2: Thanks for having me today.
1: You know, of all the theories and discussions that are being had right now about how uh, Hamas was able to infiltrate Israel the way they did and launched such a horrific attack. This one struck me that you wrote about in the cipher brief in your op-ed. You said Hamas's unexpected assault and its aftermath also illuminate the grave repercussions when sound intelligence intersects with political agendas. What do you mean by that?
2: Sure. So before, before we get to the uh, to the to the question was you know was there uh, um, reliable intelligence or not? We need to understand that there are um, several layers to early warning. One is the strategic level uh, or layer, and then you have the operational and tactical ones. The strategic layer, uh, on the strategic level, uh, Israel indeed uh, knew that Hamas is planning to do a massive, uh, to launch a massive offensive against Israel. Problem with uh, problem was that Israel operated under this set of assumptions, a mindset, if you will, that Hamas is deterred uh following several rounds um over the last several years uh and given this uh given the fact that they are deterred they won't initiate anything that kind of crosses the boundaries of anything they uh, we 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 have known so far and so the fact that uh uh that such an early warning was given uh it was all over the news both in israel uh it was a matter of of heated political debate uh, whether uh, this is real or maybe, you know, the intelligence and the security apparatuses are simply trying to uh, uh, trick uh, uh, fear uh, among the Israeli population. And that agenda was driven, first and foremost, by the Israeli Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu.
0: You know, the story you're telling in your piece, and, I, and I'm actually very happy that you wrote it because it's it's a feeling I've had for a while. It's a tale as old as time. Uh, intelligence warnings don't fit the political needs of the entities being warned. In other words, it happened before 9-11 here in the United States. It's happened many, many, many other places where intelligence failures were then blamed after the fact. And then we always find out, well, there were warnings. You ignored them or you were looking at something else. That's okay. Um, But part of the intelligence warnings, did anybody make note of the fact that Hamas leadership went to Moscow at at their invitation twice, I think, in the last 12, 13 months. Were they getting some of the information that they used, that they happened to know exactly where to hit Israel on that Saturday?
2: Well um you know based on open source and of course I'm, i don't have any uh access to classified information but i doubt that the that the russians have delivered in uh, sensitive information about potential israeli targets uh to hamas i think that uh such information sharing was probably be between hamas hezbollah and iran uh and i also think that hamas uh, has demonstrated a very advanced intelligence capabilities that allowed them to understand, first at the strategic level, to understand the situation in in which Israel is at, uh, including Israel's false mindset or the decision makers false mindset, but also on the operational and tactical levels. They knew exactly where the uh, weak spots and they they knew exactly um, that, you know, on that specific weekend, which was a high holiday in Israel, uh, that there was a, a music festival, uh, that has become, unfortunately, a target for them. Uh, they knew exactly that uh, that the IDF has des- decided to move forces from the Gaza border to the occupied territories to protect the settlers, uh, and that the border was basically left uh, undefended.
1: You know, but you were saying that the intelligence, no matter where it came from, in your op-ed, that it, it the manipulation of it is what would actually cause or potentially cause. Harm to the people it's targeted to. Uh, you gave some examples of how we saw some of this in the U.S. Uh, can you uh, give some of those examples?
2: Absolutely. Um, you know, we all we all remember the um, uh, the saga around the presence or lack thereof of, of uh, WMD in Iraq. Um, we remember how former President Trump um saw intelligence and treated their you know uh, intelligence products uh, analysis and so forth same with the uh in, in the Israeli case uh, Netanyahu was briefed time again time and time again by the Israeli security services alerting him that uh, there is an imminent uh danger to Israel both from Hamas and hezbollah mainly in light of the internal discussion um if not rift uh, between the israeli uh um, you know in the israeli society uh he was warned uh one of the reasons why uh uh defense minister Gallant uh, from the likud party uh had resigned uh which prompted unprecedented protest in israel was the fact that Gallant said uh there is an imminent danger uh there is an imminent threat uh we can no longer um uh, uh promote the the changes to the judicial uh, uh, system, and so we need to take action now. He was fired by Netanyahu. Netanyahu refused to uh, um, to talk to the cabinet, refused to talk to the Joint Chief of Staff, and the head of the intelligence uh, apparatuses simply because what they told him didn't really uh, it wasn't really aligned with his political agenda.
0: Mm. Shay Herskovitz, thank you so much, has written an op-ed about uh, the uh, so-called intelligence failures leading up to the Hamas attack. Uh, once again, a failure of not of warnings, but of uh, not taking those warnings seriously.
1: President Biden may visit Israel later this week to show U.S. support. Aaron David Miller is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. He's also a former State Department Middle East analyst. Aaron, thanks so much for being with us. for uh so Anthony Blinken has been to Israel now twice since the deadly attacks and has spoken to Netanyahu and other political leaders about uh the US's unwavering support of Israel during this time but how important is it that uh President Biden now make his way over to Israel you
3: No know, it's an intriguing idea I mean <clears throat> in terms of timing of course I think you'd really want the president there either after a ground campaign, or if it's before, there really ought to be a decent interval of some time between the president's visit and the beginning of a ground campaign, which is going to be incredibly costly, certainly to for Israeli soldiers, but probably more costly to Palestinian civilians. So I'm not sure it's a good optic to have the president uh, leave Let's say on uh, leave Israel on a Monday, and then have a major ground war start on a two, start start the next day. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it, in in some respects he it's important he can reassure Israel. He can also, I think, deliver some um, as a friend as a as a very good friend. Uh, reinforce the messages that have been coming out of Washington uh, with respect to the need to. Uh, Keep keep in mind the importance of avoiding civilian casualties and focusing on the day after, uh, because even if the Israelis succeed in doing everything they want, um, destroying Hamas, killing its leadership, disrupting and 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 eradicating its military capacity, the question is, how do you uh, prevent a, wash, re, uh, a rinse, wash, and repeat cycle?
0: And uh, the big concerns were that this was going to escalate and kick off a wider conflict. It doesn't appear that that's as imminent as it was when this all began. Have those fears subsided or is there still a lot of worry in the international community that, uh, you know, uh, Iran may or may not have had something to do with this or mm-hmm. Hezbollah may be getting ready to also make a move to coordinate with what's happening in Gaza?
3: Yeah, you know, uh, spending most of my career in the Middle East working as an analyst and advisor and a negotiator in Republican Democratic administrations, I I guess I could say that my operating principle was to worry for a living. And the fact is, the Middle East gives ample cause for doing that. We're still very early days. And while I would argue that neither Iran nor Israel wants a major escalation that could, could lead to a direct attack, one against the other, You do have the problem of the Israeli-Lebanese border and Hezbollah operating there. But again, I don't think Hezbollah wants to waste all of its assets acquired over the last 20 years, high-trajectory weapons, uh, in defense of the Palestinian cause. And I think the Iranians also have to build that into their calculation. Hezbollah is a very important Iranian link in an effort to spread its influence in the region. And I don't think Iran nor Hezbollah wants to risk a major escalation with Israel. And remember, the administration has now deployed a second carrier strike group to the Eastern Med with incredible air power. F-18s, F-16s, A-10s. I mean, the range and reach and lethality of those striker aircraft are extraordinary. And I think, hopefully, it the, the, those deployments will serve as a deterrent to both Hezbollah and Iran.
0: Aaron David Miller, thank you so much. Senior Fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, also former State Department Middle East analyst. The actor strike going on right now, and uh, no end in sight, even though we are hearing a bit about some uh, ongoing negotiations. That means no work for people uh, in the industry, but there is collateral damage as well. Uh, And not just people who make props, things of that nature, uh, but also an entire union is feeling like it is kind of collateral damage. We're talking about the members of IOTC. And we have on board with us right now is uh, Entertainment Attorney Jonathan Handel. Uh, Thanks so much. Always good to talk to you, sir. Uh, What kind of collateral damage are we talking about here? Because I think we we have talked about it on this show uh, quite a few times. Uh, trying to get the idea across that it's not just the actors who are suffering, who are, who are out on strike, not able to work right now. And it's not just the, uh, producers and studios suffering because they're not able to get their, their content made, but it affects a lot of other people. We've talked to restaurant owners and, uh, people of that nature as well. But, but you know, there's other entertainment unions and they are affected by this. Uh, IOTC being, uh, one of the biggest. So how bad is it for them right now?
4: Well, it's both bad and good for them, uh, as it turns out. It's bad for IATSE uh, in that, yes, they, they are without jobs as well, without work. They are idled, and that's not uh, that's not a great place to be for anyone. But working uh, for inadequate pay is also not a great place to be for anyone. And what most of the crew know and the IATSE leadership knows is that whatever SAG-AFTRA gets in terms of basic wage increases in the current – negotiations, which are suspended, and we're not hearing any talks going on right now, but whatever they ultimately get in that deal uh, that they are on strike over, that will most likely set a pattern or an expectation at a minimum for what IATI will will get when their contract expires just nine months from now, the middle of next year.
1: Sure. They're up up to bat right right now, right, for, uh, you know, the next negotiations. In fact, uh, just two years ago when they were doing their negotiations, uh, according to Deadline, they came within a few votes of rejecting their last contract. So does that necessarily mean that this time around it might be even harder considering what we've been watching unfold with the WGA and now SAG-AFTRA?
4: There is a real chance that we will see uh, one or even two strikes next year as well that would uh, shut down a large swath of the industry. The other major union that's up next year, uh, mid-year, is the Teamsters, Local 399 here in Los Angeles. They're the truck drivers who haul the equipment without which you can't shoot uh, a movie or a TV show. And they, again, are going to be looking uh, towards SAG to see what does SAG get uh, in basic wages, which is one of the stumbling block issues. AI, as everyone knows, is another issue. And AI is an issue for the crew and even the drivers as well. Some crew positions are not affected by AI, but others, such as editors, uh, production designers, sound editors, various others, are are very much potentially threatened by AI. And the truck drivers, the Teamsters, are threatened by a different form of AI, namely self driving uh, trucks and vehicles. So uh, this is all tied together. And I think an attempt, you know, when, when you look at it and say, well, they're collateral damage. Yes, they are in a difficult position. Anyone not working is in a difficult position, but they are aware and certainly should be aware that their fates are very closely linked to SAG's fate.
0: All right. Uh, Jonathan Handel, always uh, great to talk to you. You know, they say it's darkest before the dawn, but when we talk to you, we're convinced dawn must be right around the corner because corner, you make it sound pretty dark right now. It is pretty dark right now, but fingers crossed. Keep those fingers crossed. Thank you. Uh, Anyway, uh, talking about uh, other people affected by this uh, ongoing strike, including members of IOTC. And I know, uh, uh, Elsa, we talked on this show to someone who designed costumes and worried about AI because, you know, AI and CGI – uh, making a putting a costume on somebody which they do in some superhero flicks now that's work that a human being is not doing
5: but
1: we're watching uh, that other than too. the person
0: who's, who's writing the computer code
1: sure but we're also seeing that happening too with actual virtual sets right that were born out of the uh pandemic you know that was a workaround for yeah. people to be able to shoot stuff so that is definitely a concern for. and we ILC have a virtual
0: well. set here for uh K&X in and depth it'd <laughs> yeah. be very nice
1: You are listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Elsa and for Charles Feldman today.
0: Rite Aid, one of the biggest pharmacy chains in the U.S., but uh, it has now filed for bankruptcy.
1: Which is really uh, surprising to a lot of people. But is it a warning sign that other big retail stores and pharmacy chains could also be in trouble? Neil Saunders is an analyst at Global Data Retail. Thank you for joining us today, Neil. You are them. So we've seen uh, in the last uh, couple of weeks, months, um, big, giant businesses that nobody would even consider would fail. Bed, Bath & Beyond, Party City at least filing for bankruptcy. Now we see Rite Aid, which is a staple when it comes to a pharmacy uh, in trouble. Is this an indication of something really horrible with the economy or Did things like interest rates and, um, you know, the the pandemic reveal just horrible management that finally uh, toppled a giant corporation?
6: Well, I think it's more the latter, because when you think about it, Rite Aid is pretty essential. It sells things that we all need. We all go to get prescriptions from time to time. So actually, the business and the sales are not too bad at Rite Aid. The problem is the company had a whole load of debt. It had over $3 billion in long-term debt. And for the past six years, it has made loss after loss, and it's lost billions. So really, things couldn't go on as they were. The financials were far too weak. And of course, the coup de grace on top of all of this is the company is now facing uh, legal settlements and legal uh, cases from the opioid uh, crisis. And it really cannot afford to pay out on any of those. So it's opted for bankruptcy.
0: You know, there, there's a Rite Aid close to where I live. I uh, go by there from time to time. And I noticed over the last year or so that uh, that whole shelves were taken out and everything else was spread out. In other words, there was less stuff for sale inside that Rite Aid And I never saw a lot of people in there. And so I started feeling like, well, if a Rite Aid's going to close, this one's probably going to be in the shopping block. So we know some stores are going to be closing. But uh, explain to us, if you would, this opioid settlement thing that that's hurting uh, Rite Aid's bottom line and uh, pushing it into bankruptcy. Why? Why was Rite Aid on the hook for some of the opioid lawsuits? What do they do?
6: Well, really, it's the same as most of the other chains that have settled or are in the process of settling. People like Walgreens and CVS and Walmart. Basically, they've been charged with overprescribing. They've been charged with not uh, undertaking their duties to prevent uh, overprescribing. And that overprescription, as we know, led to a big crisis with the opioid uh sort of consumption, and people really becoming addicted to them um a lot of the chains have been charged with not prescribing properly and not putting in place safeguards for that and Most of them are reaching or have reached settlements with uh, various local authorities and with the federal government um to close down those cases now, right aid actually hasn't gone through the process of a settlement yet. But it's likely if they did that, it would cost in the region of about a billion dollars. Looking at what other people have had to pay out now, Rite Aid just doesn't have the money for that. Um, it probably would have gone bankrupt even without that crisis, but it just doesn't need that hassle on top of everything else.
1: So in 2015, Walgreens attempted to buy Rite Aid for about 9.4 billion. They eventually Walgreens scaled back a couple of years later, according to Associated Press, and bought. Just about 1,900 stores. Is it possible that one of the other chains will come in and and maybe uh, gobble up the rest that are left?
6: It's certainly possible that other chains will look at it or they'll look to cherry pick stores. I think the two main pharmacy chains, CVS and Walgreens, will both look at Rite Aid and see if there are assets they want to purchase. I don't think they'll want to purchase the whole business because I think there's a lot of problems and issues inherent in that business, but they certainly might be interested in creaming off some of the stores because, as I said, this is actually a business that at a sales level is reasonable. It's providing things that people want. And as long as you run the stores properly, you should be able to make a reasonable uh, level of business and profit out of it. So certainly some of these stores could change hands.
0: You talk about some of the weaknesses in this uh, industry, the uh, drugstore chain. Is it a bad time to be a drugstore chain in general? Is this a sign of of, uh, of a bigger weakness in that entire industry?
6: Well, I don't think it's a great time to be a drugstore chain. Uh, CVS and Walgreens are both closing stores as well. They're obviously not in a bankruptcy process, but they're looking to consolidate. There's a lot of pressures. There's the rise of online, both for convenience products like toothpaste prescriptions are going online slightly more than they were before. And of course, a lot of these stores are suffering from high crime, and they've locked things behind plexiglass, which has discouraged customers to come in. So there's a lot of problems for drug stores at the moment. I don't think the industry is collapsing. We've still got thousands of drug stores across the country, and we won't see them disappear completely. But we'll definitely see fewer stores over the next five years, as the chains try to square their financials and close underperforming locations.
0: All right. Uh, Neil Saunders, thank you so much. Analyst at uh, Global Data Retail talking about the uh, Rite Aid's bankruptcy and, and what warning signs there are for the drugstore chain business.
1: And Rob, I just wanted to throw in there because people want to know, can they get their prescriptions? You can still visit the locations or shop online while well, it's going through the voluntary Chapter 11 process. So if you're concerned about that, but you know, you might want to find somewhere else to go in the near future if that Doesn't work out. Coming up next, Taylor Swift dominating movie theaters. What is her secret to everything she does? We're going to try to find out next. Is there anything Taylor Swift cannot do? First, her concert tour, huge, popular, boosted local economies, made gazillions Then she started dating football player Travis Kelsey, giving the NFL tons of new fans. And
0: You know, the NFL is a struggling organization that didn't have a lot of money left and uh, was about to go away. And then Taylor Swift swooped in and saved it. Uh, Maybe not quite. But anyway, uh, she may also save movie theaters. Her concert movie, Taylor Swift, The Era's Tour, opened with 96 million bucks this weekend, lead all movies in North America, set a record for the highest ever opening for a concert film. Juliana Kaplan is the labor and inequality reporter for Insider. She's been uh, covering Taylor Swift's business success. Thanks so much for joining us.
5: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Great choice with the new romantics.
0: Yeah. I love that. Taylor Swift uh, can do no wrong, apparently, and is the savior of our economy and perhaps the world itself. Uh, And I'm just, I'm only being partially facetious. Uh, It seems like She's succeeding in everything she does. Is she in danger here with all her success in that thinking she's not failing at anything and she might take a step too far, bite off more than she can chew, and then have that inevitable misstep?
5: Yeah, I mean, that's that's a great question. I have to say, just looking at the numbers alone, it it seems like. Each and every endeavor is only getting bigger and bigger. And I think also it's important to think about in this moment right now, we're seeing a lot of her, which historically has not always been the case. She's very good at disappearing when we want to see her or when we don't want, she doesn't want to be seen rather. And we are in the lead up to, as you aptly played earlier, 1989 Taylor's version, which is very much an album about going out, being seen, her first real, like, marketed as pop album. So I think right now, everything she's doing, as always, if she wants to be seen, she'll be seen, and is all a means towards an end.
1: You know, the numbers were staggering of what she brought in for the Ares tour in the movie theaters. Mm -hmm. $93.3 million, second best domestic opening ever for the month of October, after The Joker, which brought in $96.2 million. This is insane. I mean, wh- what percentage do you know is going now to AMC theaters? Because it's no secret that the theaters have been struggling for years and on the verge of collapse. What does something like this do to inject new life into, say, a company like AMC where this is airing?
5: Yeah, I'm not super familiar and I think that not many people are with the exact splits and how this worked out but I think it is important to note to your point one that this is helping revitalize movie theaters which had been having a pretty rough go of it economically up until the Barbenheimer sensation over the summer and this is going to pretty much I think completely turn around at least the back half of the year for you know the movie theater industry um and also importantly like this film is being distributed through amc it's not being distributed through any of the big production companies as well so again that's its own economic feat in of in and of itself that's going to be a better split for everybody all around it also meant that taylor was able to get a waiver from sag-aftra to make sure that this followed all of the guidelines of the interim agreement so again strategically like she has been able to promote it like you saw people on the red carpet and you're not seeing a lot of red carpet premieres right now either.
0: You're talking strategy, and that's a good point I want to dig into. Uh, Taylor obviously is very talented, uh, has a very savvy sense of what entertains people, makes music that uh, uh, a lot of people like. She's cultivated a very likable personality that I I can't find anyone in the world that's got a real problem uh, with her. Uh, But what about the business strategy? Because we're touching on that. How much of the business strategy is her, or is she surrounded by some really savvy business people that know where? to utilize her abilities and talents well and if that's the case can we hire them
5: that is a great question i again am not incredibly familiar with the inner machinations of taylor's business dealings which i i can't imagine anyone outside of 13 management and her family business is and that's very purposeful but to that point, as I was saying, this is a family business. Like The Swifts themselves put up, I believe, some of the upfront money for the film. Uh, I believe that she is almost certainly pretty involved in a lot of the big decisions. Uh, I think we saw really good evidence of this in the Miss Americana documentary, which is a great look into her songwriting, but I think also her business prowess, where she's Sitting at the head of the table, talking to her marketing team, talking to the rest of her team, explaining the vision for the album, how long it will be, when it will likely land, Uh, you know, and she's sitting at the head of that table. But yes, she is surrounded by a team, I think, with great business acumen. But, you know, I do think she is there guiding that. I think another great example of what we can see when it comes to sort of her business side is She consistently has the same people working for her on tours. You know, you see consistency in the backup singers. Her band has been with her, like many members since about the Fearless era. She has gone on record saying she gives her dancers health insurance. She gave all of her truckers 100K bonuses. You know, I think she's very good at the people business and also translating that into something that makes her, you know, not only... A superstar, but a good boss,
1: oh yeah, I mean, that's rare. people just don't see that kind of treatment as an employee anymore, and she's also been able to influence Beyonce, another just mega superstar, isn't beyonce doing something similar with with her Renaissance tour?
5: yeah, well, Beyonce had always I believe been planning sort of three acts is how she was conceiving it for the Renaissance era, so this was going to i think always be the second act it's always a little harder to know with her cuz you know if taylor is seen not that often in public it i was shocked to see that beyonce was at the eras tour premiere not because you know they have i think a long standing appreciation and friendship but getting beyonce to leave her house is a big feat um so i was very excited and surprised to see that but Taylor Swift, I think, did influence, again, the distribution of that, because that's another concert film we're seeing distributed directly by AMC, meaning that these artists don't even have sort of that like middleman removal of a production company. But so will I do think that, you know, the visual aspect and the act two of Renaissance was always planned to be in a film format, you know, Taylor has essentially created this new avenue for artists to directly distribute their films.
0: All right. Uh, Julian and Kaplan, thank you. Before I let you go though, I want to ask you one final question very quickly. Uh, obviously, uh, Taylor Swift helped the NFL by dating Travis Kelsey. Uh, could we get Taylor Swift to date some of our Southern California freeways? <laughs>
5: a partnership.
0: You know, she, yeah, she and does, that would uh, a lot
5: about cars. Yeah, and so that, that would doubt. that
0: would help. Yeah, that would help bring some money and attention to it. Uh, thank you so much for uh talking with us uh Juliana Kaplan Labor and Inequality reporter for Insider. It covers uh Taylor Swift's business success and there is quite a bit of that right now. Uh that's going to do it for KNex in depth today. Uh Elsa Ramon and today for Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. We'll see you tomorrow at 1 p.m.